Welcome to Storytelling with Lindsay Bednar. Hi, sister. Hi. Long time no see. I know. It's the holidays. I get a lot of you. I know. So we just came off of Christmas break up north with the fam. And it was, what was the temperature? Well, when I pulled into Grand Rapids on Thursday afternoon, my car said negative 11. But with the feels like temperature, it was negative 40. Yeah. So (laughs) we basically holed up in the house. We got tons of togetherness time. We didn't have our normal outdoorsy sledding, skating. Last year, I think we walked across the lake to the island, which was super fun. That's right. We didn't get to do that this year. That's such a bummer. So, but we played lots of games and um, hung out. So that was super cozy. It was good. Yeah. And my dogs got into a little bit of trouble. They did. Yes. That is. Okay. So. Well, so I was worried about them because, of course, in that cold, you don't want to have them out for very long. Right. And they've been going up there. They're two and three, as you know. And so they love going to grandma and grandpa's because they can just roam around. No leashes, no collars. It's so much fun. Yeah, it's the best. So I was trying to keep tabs on every time we'd let all six dogs out. And that's right, people. There are six dogs at my parents when we all get together. But um, when I was letting them out, they would wander, which they do, and they always come back. So I never worry about it. But this weekend in particular, I did just because of the temperature. So I put on my big warm coat and I started to walk down the driveway and then look around on Gulf Coast Road and just yell for them and yell for them because they weren't coming home. And they'd been outside by this point for like an hour and a half probably, which is probably just too long in that weather. So anyways, even though they're golden retrievers, it's too long. So all of a sudden I see Belle come tearing out of some neighbor's house and is just running towards me for dear life. And I was like, you get over here. You're in trouble, little lady. And so she comes running down with me. Catch comes out. They both come running down the driveway with me and we go in the house. I was standing in the front entry of the house. I had not even, maybe I don't even think I got my coat off yet. And all of a sudden there was a knock at the door. So this person had come behind me down the driveway and I had no clue because it was so cold. I was just running into the house. And I'm looking, I'm like, who is this guy? I don't recognize him. It's not like the neighbors bringing over Christmas cookies. I was trying to figure out who he was. And then I happened to look at his jacket that he's wearing and it says police. And I'm like, oh God, this has to be about my girls. So I opened the door and I said, hello, officer. And he says, hi. Um, So do you have two golden retrievers? And I said, yes, yes, I do. He said, well, the neighbors called because they were getting into their chicken coop and they had almost ripped apart the fencing of the chicken coop and gotten a couple chickens. So if you could just keep them, I was like, sir, uh, listen, say no more. I will keep them leashed. I will keep them in the house. I'll be good with them the rest of the weekend. And of course, I'm freaking out because I think this happened on Friday and we've got the whole weekend up there. And I thought, how can I do this? So the short version is they almost got the Christmas chickens. They did not. The neighbors were not happy. I didn't know the neighbors had chickens in my defense. I did not either. And I don't think the dogs did. I think the chickens are new because this has never happened before. So a novel situation we have. So now I've got to figure out every time we go see grandma and grandpa, what am I going to do with the dogs so that they're not trying to get the Christmas chickens? Right. Because they're used to running free up there. It's it's God's country and they just get to, you know, traipse around wherever they want. And I do think in the summer it's easier because we're down by the lake more. Right. So hopefully it'll be easier, but... Yeah. 
anyhow, that was the good. That was a good story. It was. And Dad said, "How come every time us girls come home, the cops are called? The only time the cops <laughs> are called is when the girls come home." I didn't hear him say that. Yeah. That's great. So it reminds him of when we were in high school. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Dad. Okay, so most people who know you know you as this bodybuilder, nutritionist. Uh, you have gotten quite the platform on social media, and let me just let me just back up and let me just let everybody know what it's like to be Chris's sister. Oh, great! Here we go. When we go out in public, there is never a shortage of people approaching her to be like, "Hey, are are you a bodybuilder?" Or I think I've follow you on Instagram or I mean, in our little neck of the woods, she's um, getting quite the name for herself. So it's always been this way, though, I will say, when we were younger, you are just a magnet for people to approach you. I don't care if it's kids, or well, of course, men, but uh, women <laughs> just uh, glom onto you because of the aura that you have and the the vibe that you give off. It's just people want to be around you. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, so first, when did you discover that you were, um, that your youngest sister was like a 2.0 version of you? <laughs> <laughs> Let's see. <laughs> no, but um, honestly, when... When you stepped into this and and flipped your life, that is that is where I want to start. Going back to what you were doing prior to being a nutritional therapist and the all of the steps and the path that you took to get where you are now. Awesome. So I'm going to go back to what I see as sort of the beginning for me, which is I always always at some point I'd say in maybe high school knew I wanted to be a professional and that was because of dad. So I would watch dad get up in the morning, go to the gym super early in the morning, go work all day as a dentist. And then as we grew up in the small town that we came from in Grand Rapids, I just remember being about in the town like when I got my first job at the pharmacy when I was 15 or when I was working at the golf course when I was in high school or in college. And I always heard, oh, your parents are so nice. Oh, I just adore your parents. Your parents are so sweet. And there was something about when people would say Dr. Rowell, I always thought that was neat. That was like, I was proud of that for some reason, because it was some sort of professional title. So when I was trying to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up, I thought, well, I want to be a professional, but I really don't want to look in people's mouths all day. Like, God bless our sister who does it. It is very impressive because it's such a small area. And so every time dad and I would argue about whose job was more stressful, him being a dentist or me being a lawyer, he would always retort with, and I had no comeback to this, by the way. He would say, well, you've got to remember, I work in a space that's this big all day. And he would hold up his fist because the size of a mouth is like a fist. So imagine the precision and the technique and the stress about getting everything so detailed and right. Wow. Yeah. And I think that would be stressful. But then what I would come back with, I guess I did have a retort. I said, yeah, but dad, when you're done and you're not working on patients, your work is done. As a lawyer, I'm working nights. I'm working weekends. I'm always writing briefs. I, I just felt like my work never ended when I was doing that. So in any event, that's kind of a funny sidebar. But so when I was trying to decide what I wanted to be when I grew up, I just knew I wanted to be a professional. And when I knew it wasn't dentistry, being a physician seemed too daunting to me in terms of that's way too much school. So how can I go to the minimal amount of school and still be a professional? And that was being a lawyer because it was three years of school after college. So marry that with the fact that I 
really did enjoy debate when I took it in middle school. I knew that I already was pretty good at and enjoyed speaking in front of people. I thought that was fun. And I know there's very few people that find that fun. So I thought, well, if I have a natural talent for that, and I really enjoy this debate thing, maybe law school is a thing. So then when I got to college, I made sure I was taking courses like pre-law and things to see if I was really interested in that. And that's really what caused me to launch onto that career. Mm, I was hoping you would bring up debate because I remember you being in debate too and thinking, wow, that was so out of my wheelhouse. And people who were that confident to speak like that in high school was amazing. And you always were. Well, I'm not going to pretend I wasn't nervous, but I there's something about me, considering the marathons I've run and the bodybuilding and all that, there's something about me that really likes to take on a challenge that scares the crap out of me. Yeah. Because doing debate was a little bit scary. And I'll never forget, you know, I don't have, I don't remember tons and tons about our childhood. Like <laughs> you and Steph have all the memories and you remind me. I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot we did that. But there was this debate woman who I, well, girl, who I was competing against, who I remembered was really good with extemporaneous speaking. And if you have never done debate or don't know what the topic of extemporaneous speaking is, this is where they literally hand you a topic. You have a few minutes to just think about it and prepare, and then you have to go up and give a talk about it. So it's all extemporaneous. It could be about flowers. It could be about the weather. It could be about how to carve something in wood. I mean, it could be about any topic. And so I remember watching her and thinking, okay, she's really good at that. I don't know if I could do that. Like, I'm really good at the rehearse thing because I know what I'm going to say. But that to me was even more exciting. And so to, I, I analogized that back at the time in my in my small brain that I had then about this topic, which was that must feel a little bit like when judges ask you questions. You have to be ready with an answer. You have to always be prepared. You have to, you don't necessarily know what they're going to care about or what they're going to ask you, but you have to be prepared. And so just the, the idea of standing up in court and being asked questions by judges was always exciting to me. So law school was a natural choice. Now, I started college at St. Ben's and I did that at the time because I had a boyfriend who was in St. John's, hashtag Benny Johnny. That's always a thing. And then I decided to transfer it because we had broken up and I had really, truly always wanted to go to college in Boston. The city, the idea of going to college in Boston was like so exciting to me. So I transferred, finished school at Boston College and then came back to Minnesota to go to the University of Minnesota. And so I, I, took a year off in between college and law school because I really was like, I want to appreciate it. I want to see what it's like to work in the world first. And so I deferred and then went a year after. So I had that year break and then did three more years and then practiced law. So I practiced law from 2003 until all the way up in 2019 when I decided to leave, go back to school for nutrition and become a nutritional therapist, which is just wild. That, that is wild. And I'm, I'm remembering you in, I don't know if you're in law school, so you'll have to remind me, but I remind you of this story frequently where I came to your apartment and it was like a scene out of A Beautiful Mind because <laughs> you guys, her entire living room floor was littered with, and I don't, when I say littered, that doesn't sound right. They were very strategically placed pieces of paper with, you know, tons of uh, typed writing on them all over her floor and she would just walk around and study each of them. It literally does sound like a beautiful mind when you describe it, but I do remember doing that. And so that was when I lived with Hetty, who was my best yes. friend from growing up. So we lived in the North Loop. We were in Riverwalk when Riverwalk used to be apartments, not condos. And we lived there while I was in my first year of law school. And I was, so for me, and I, I know this is different for everyone who goes to law school, but when you go to law school, that first semester is real challenging because you're literally starting to learn a new language. 
And what I didn't appreciate for sure in that first month, probably first six weeks, is that the professors don't actually expect you to remember every single detail of every single case and every rule of law identified in every single case. But I didn't understand that. Because I'm like, well, I'm just here showing up for law school. What's this about? Right. I want to be a lawyer. Like, and, and so it was very overwhelming for me at first. And then at some point at about probably six weeks in, I got it. Like it clicked. And I was like, oh, okay. So actually what matters is this, this, and this. I don't have to pay attention to all this other stuff or remember all those details. And then I still, I would study like that a lot. Like what you saw on my floor in terms of organizing my thoughts, I would study in terms of having cases out and turn to certain pages. And and by the way, for anyone listening, this is before we did everything online (laughs) because of course we had lots of paper and all hardcover books in law school. We weren't doing everything online. I had to take my LSAT exam. No, I had to take my bar exam. Not when I sat for law school, but when I sat for the bar to pass the bar, we hand wrote. I hand wrote for two days. We did not take You're anything kidding. on a computer. Uh huh. Wow. And that was in 2000. When did I become a lawyer? 2003. It was in July of 2003. So I know kids now who are taking the bar exam do it all by computer. And so they're typing, but your arm and hand was so sore from writing because you're racing against the clock to get all of your sure. analysis down on paper, which is pretty intense. Well, it's not like computers weren't. I know. Widely used then. I know. It's very odd. But when you think about it, they also weren't as integral in the school system. I mean, I don't know if you remember from teaching, were you even relying on computers heavily at that point? Uh, Or when did you graduate from college? 2005. Okay. So you were still in school. Yeah. So did you always use computers right when you started teaching? I did. Okay. Um, So maybe we were just behind the time. Okay. I mean, still textbooks. And this was, this was exam style. Right. So we were literally writing out. So you had for the bar exam, you have one day of all multiple choice, and then you have one day of all essay, but it's writing. So multiple choice obviously isn't hard to write. You're just circling, you know. Yeah, my hands are clammy just thinking about oh, that. Oh, I know. My hands are actually starting to get sweaty thinking about Ugh. the fact that I did that to myself, but yeah. it was, yeah, and then passed and of course started practicing right after that. So I started practicing in 2003, in the fall of 2003. I remember my partners gave me so much crap. I say partners now. I, of course, wasn't a partner then. I was an associate, but that was when Dave and I got married also. So here I take the bar exam in July. I take July and August off because I had already been clerking for them while I was in law school. So I took July and August off and then I started fresh in September. And then Dave and I got married in November and I went on a two-week honeymoon. And so they all gave me so much crap. They were like, oh, we just started our job two months ago and you're already taking a two-week vacation. I was like, guys, come on. I got married. Like, really? <laughs> the wedding was planned long before I started working here, but they were all cool about it. It was just wow, kind of funny. that was a huge shift of a year. Yeah, that year was huge. And I also, that year, ran the Twin Cities Marathon in October. And I remember at the time, it was my fastest marathon to up to that point. And I qualified for Boston. So that was all super exciting. Oh, wow. That yeah. was all the same year. Yeah, it was a really fun year. It was all fun. Mm-hmm. So then I, then I get back, to get back to your question about the transition. So I practiced law starting in 2003. And I genuinely mean this when I say it. Like, I loved it. I loved the practice of law. I loved arguing in court. I loved meeting with clients. I loved analyzing different legal issues. I loved coordinating as a team. I loved my partners, the associates. I loved my firm. Like, there is, I I really mean it when I say I have no complaints about it other than the general complaints that lawyers make, which is having to write down your time all day, every day sucks. There's no lawyer who likes it. And if they say they like it, they're lying, in my opinion. Right. Um, because you literally, I would have to write down what I was doing every six minutes of every day. 
because you're billing by the six minute increments. And that's just the way the law practice was then. And I, I noticed in some firms it's changing, but it's really, that's, that's a hard model to break because that's really how lawyers get paid. Right. And it's, it's been around forever. So that was, that was probably my biggest complaint. And then the other one was, and you can, you can vouch for this because you're in my family. I was always, always on. Like there were very little times where I was up at the family in the summer, up at the family for Christmas, where I wasn't also on the computer, writing briefs, you know, researching things, doing some sort of work. Right. And I carried boxes of papers and books around me. I mean, one of my friends, Liz, still, she just was giving me crap about this a month ago, saying, I will never forget when I was in Mexico with you and you had like all of these red ropes with you and all of this paper. And I was like, what are you doing? And I said, well, I've got to get through this stuff while I'm on vacation. And it just was always there. You know, I just didn't feel like I could ever leave it. And so that was hard. But other than that, I really, really genuinely enjoyed it. And you can't do something as much as as that. You can't work that often if you don't love it. Right. You can't. You would lose your mind. Yeah. And so that was good for me to be in a career that I was so fulfilled with. And if you would have asked me 10 years ago, even frankly, probably five years ago, I would have said, I will do this until I retire because this is just my identity. This is who I am. And then in 2017, I started meditating and that's when everything changed for me. And I came to meditation out of desperation, really, for wanting something in my life to change. And I say that because I had been divorced in 2012. I'd been married in 2003, divorced in 2012, and didn't date for like a year because I just really wanted to take time and work on myself. What I did was probably lawyer more than ever. I just threw myself into my work. And then I started to date a little bit and I had relationships off and on, but nothing very significant. And I had a relationship that ended in 2017 that was, for lack of a better term, frankly, very toxic. And it was, I was an active participant in it. And I was desperate after that ended, after I ended it, to say, why am I choosing to spend time with men who frankly don't treat me well? That's really what I came to this realization about. And I'm sitting here looking at mom and dad who have been married for now 50 years. You know, the whole high school sweethearts, virgins till their wedding night, like picturesque, perfect upbringing in a way. And I couldn't understand where here I was divorced with a series of bad relationships. And like something I'm doing isn't working. And because I was trained as a problem solver, that's what lawyers do. We solve problems. I thought, how is it that I can solve anyone else's problem on this planet? And I haven't been able to figure this out for myself yet. And so it was, and by the way, at that point in 2017, I had been, in, I had been doing regular therapy since at least 2000, probably seven, 2008. And I had come to therapy originally because Dave and I were having problems in our marriage. And then he ended up going to treatment in 2010. And then we were divorced in 2012. But we were in couples therapy together at the time. I was doing individual therapy. We got divorced. I kept doing individual therapy. So I was very confused how I could have all of the success in all of these other areas of my life, meaning lawyering, running, bodybuilding, all of this stuff. And yet this relationship thing was a total mystery to me. And so I came to meditation out of desperation for wanting an answer that I wasn't finding in any other method. And I had heard about this woman, who now is, of course, one of my closest friends on the planet, Vanessa, who was a meditation coach. And when I get recommendations in threes, when someone tells me about a person, then another person does, and then another person does, I'm like, okay, I must really have to meet this person. And the first person I did that with was Warren King. 
And I had heard about Warren from three different people in a very short period of time. So I was like, well, I don't know who this Warren guy is, but I got to go see him. Oh, yeah. And then come to find out, Warren, I think, is one of the people who recommended Vanessa to me. Crazy. So it's so funny how the world works. Absolutely. So I end up reaching out to Vanessa and I hire her to teach me how to meditate, which for anyone listening that is like, wow, there's people that actually do that. The answer is yes. (laughs) And I needed a lot of help. I always say... If you were going to try to learn French, yeah, you could do Rosetta Stone or whatever and like do it on your own and like you could get the meditation app and whatever. But I'm like, no, I need someone to sit me down, stare at me in a room and show me how to do it. Like I want the tactical, practical, here's the way you do it. So God bless her. She came down to the law firm, you know, the Wells Fargo Tower and it was at night. We were all done with client meetings. There were still people roaming around in the office, of course, because there are always people there. But it was probably 6.30 at night, 7 o'clock at night. And she came down to the office, sat across a conference room table for me, and taught me how to meditate. Were you like in a pantsuit or like a... Oh, of course. Blazer. I was in a full suit. Yeah. Full suit, like walking into the boardroom like she's a client. She's there in her, you know, this jacket that she has. I call it her Jesus jacket. It's yes. that Technicolor dream coat. It's so beautiful. And she walks in wearing that. And I was like, who is this woman? This is what are we doing? This is kind of cool. But it was very awkward for me because I'm sitting at a table. And before we started meditating together, because she was walking me through how to do it, she starts asking me questions about myself. And, you know, one of the first things is tell me about your childhood. And of course, I'm like, oh my God, it's perfect. And it was so perfect and everything's perfect. And I mean, by a lot of, in a lot of measurements, it was. I mean, mom and dad are pretty amazing. We're pretty lucky. But the reality is that every human on the planet, has something that was in rye in their childhood right. that they could work on. School, it could be from, you know, anything. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so I had plenty of that that I was very unaware of at the time. And she's just kind of taking notes. And I'm sure she's probably writing things down like, oh, red flag. She Bullshit. thinks <laughs> Yeah, totally. <laughs> Bullshit. She thinks she's perfect. She thinks everything's perfect. She's very unaware of anything. Who knows what she yeah. was saying. But um, And then she took me through a meditation. And it was one of the most powerful experiences I've ever had. And I remember feeling like, okay, this is actually really cool. And this feels different than when I've tried to do it on my own. Wow. So after that, I was like, okay, this was amazing. I want to hire you to do more of this. Because of course, as a lawyer, I'm like, look, I'm busy lawyering. I have to hire people to help me. I have acupuncture people. I have other energy healers. I have a chiropractor. I have I had physical therapists. I had help for everything outside of lawyering because I was focused on lawyering. If I could have done a chef and everything else at the time, I would have. Right. So she and I started meditating together and there was a time, some point then in 2018 where she said, I think you're ready for Activate. And I said, what's Activate? And she said, well, it's my signature eight-week course that helps people figure out their purpose. And I was like, um, no thanks, I have my purpose. You know, thinking, I'm a lawyer, I'm happy. I don't. But there was something about it that was intriguing to me and, and I'm always, always, always looking for signs. I mean, this has been my thing for a very long time, like signs from the universe. And what was interesting to me is when she said that her program was called Activate, here I had just come off. I had hired a business coach for lawyering. And this business coach who I was working with had taken me through a series of those, not personality type exams, but for lack of a better term, that. So I took with her something called Strength Finders. I took the Emotional Intelligence Test and I took Myers-Briggs. And if you're if you're at where I was at that time, which was in my mid-30s, I guess, 
working your way up the corporate ladder at any major organization in town, they're going to put you through those exams at some point. Like to go to different levels, you've got to actually be tested in that way. So I had never been that tested because I'm at a law firm and that's just not what we do. So I thought it was neat that she was giving me those tests. So my whole point in telling you that is in my strength finders exam, which is a test that you take that identifies your the top 30 strengths in order of best to worst for you. And the theory behind the test is do not focus on your bottom strengths because they're actually not strengths of yours. They're things you're not naturally good at and those are weaknesses and you are going to do way better in life and be way more successful if you go hard on your top five or top 10. Mm. And my number one strength on that strength finders exam was that I'm an activator. So just that word activate, when I just heard that that's my strength, I'm like, okay, that's a sign. I don't know what it means, but that's a sign. So I just listened to it. And so I eventually took her course. So, you know, I was taking her course on nights and weekends while I was lawyering and busy doing that. And it really, truly got me interested in, oh, maybe I do want to start some kind of business someday. Maybe nutrition is a calling of mine. But but I also was very busy lawyering. And so I was I, I couldn't even conceptualize how I could ever put the two together because lawyering was my full-time gig and I was very committed to it. Right. And so as 2018 went by, then I come into 2019 and I ended up going on a couple different vacations that spring where I always say I was really like trying to find myself. You know, one of them, I went to Miraval in Arizona where I had an intuitive reading. I had an astrology reading and these women literally took one look at me knowing nothing about me when I walked into the room and they said, oh, are you an entrepreneur? Do you own your own business? And and I literally start, just started bawling because mm-hmm. I'm like, no, but that's kind of why I'm here. I'm trying to figure all this out, you know? And so they really encouraged me and said, oh yeah, you've got a team of angels on the other side who very much want you to do this. You have a lot of support. This is something that you're, you're here for a bigger purpose than what you're doing now. And it may evolve over time, but you really got to start listening to this. I mean, I'm getting chills all over again, and I've obviously have been with you through this and know the story, but every time I hear that, it's like unreal. And to think of, yeah, your your guides being there and, and pushing you along the way, it's just yes. amazing. Yes. And did I ever tell you in the astrology, no, it was in the intuitive reading that Grandma Foss was one of my guides. Oh, yeah. That she came in. Yes. Yes. Uh-huh. And I remember her giving me a message through the intuitive at the time. And the intuitive was able to tell me lots of stuff about Grandma Foss that she would never have known. And what she said to me was, she is very proud of the work you're doing on the family. And I remember thinking, oh, that's so, it just, it just felt so so good to hear. And by the work, she just means that I've been really working on through therapy and meditation, being in my feelings, identifying my feelings, having hard conversations, having things not be passive aggressive, speaking about actual truth, being vulnerable. Like that's been some of my deepest work because I never did it before. Right. You know? Right. And so that was, it was just affirming to know that grandma was like in my corner for that's it, which so is amazing. cool. And yeah. communication is a constant journey, one that we never reach an end game at. And so. Um, Especially I think if you grew up in Minnesota. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. We just talked about this on one of the other podcasts about how it was Amanda, author of Shattered Reality and how she when I first, we first connected about writing together, she responded with a litany of reasons as to why she couldn't do it right now. Oh my God. I listened to that episode and I was laughing out loud listening to that because weren't you like patient with her and you were like, okay, yeah. great. Just not your time. Right. Yeah. Because when you're ready, it'll happen. And if it doesn't, then, you know, so yes. be it. But I just, I, I knew that that project was going to come and, and, and people need to get there when they're ready. 
But yes, in Minnesota, we love to just give a bunch of reasons as to why we can't do something as to just say, well, we can't. And you and I have talked about this before. It's also the whole thing, how we just, it's not even self-deprecating. It's literally just, what is it? Like we may not make excuses, but I'm just thinking of the example. We've talked about this before where we can't even take a compliment. Someone oh, yeah. compliments us yeah. and it's like, I got on sale. Yeah. I got it at TJ Maxx. Oh, it's total hand-me-down. Yeah, it was free. It's like yeah. you say the dumbest stuff just to completely diminish yourself. Right, right. And and I don't know why we do that, but it is a very Minnesota thing. Right. Oh, I love your hair. Oh, it's so dirty. I have like five pounds of you know dry shampoo. <laughs> totally. Like, what? Say how about, thank you. How about say thank you? Yeah. So true. Yeah. So just in terms of that transition, because I know there's also a lot of people right now who are waking up on the planet. And who are wondering, like, am I supposed to be doing something more? I would say to anyone who is asking themselves that question, the answer is yes, you are. (laughs) The answer is yes, you are supposed to be doing something more. If you are wondering at all, that is your soul trying to get your attention to wake you up. And so what I tell people is if, if they really are curious about how they can figure that out, start meditating. We have every single answer that we ever wanted within us already. And what we do is we ignore those answers. We tune them out by being busy. And I'm the queen of this, being busy, being distracted, engaging in escapism behaviors, working too much, you name it. But the list of things that we do to keep ourselves outside of our body and not be present and tune in and be still. I mean, this is still my deepest work is to be still. My default always is to work out too much work too much, go do something else. And I I just, it's funny, I was listening to a podcast the other day and they were talking about procrastination and my ears kind of perked up because I would say I have a procrastination tendency in many areas of my life, which is unusual to me. It seems unusual for someone like me who's so disciplined. Like I don't miss the gym. I'm very disciplined with my eating, but I do have this procrastination tendency. And so I've been like, what is that? Is that just a rebellion because I'm so disciplined in all these areas? And so I'm like, I don't want to get that thing done right now. It's annoying or whatever it is. And this person on the podcast, which I was like, whoa, that just stung. And I heard it. And it's true. Is procrastination is simply avoiding having to feel the emotions around the task you're supposed to get done. (laughs) That's uncomfy. (laughs) It's exactly what I said. I was like, okay, I I really need to take a look at that because it's true. Huh? If you have fear around what you're going to get done, if you have a lack of self-worth around what you're going to get done, if you have frustration or annoyance or whatever, and you don't want to feel that stuff, you're not going to sit in there and do it because you don't want to feel those things. So I'm really leaning into that now to because, the, again, going back to the therapy for all the years and whatever, my one of my biggest journeys has been identifying my feelings and actually feeling them. First, I have to even know what they are. Right. Like, what do I feel? Do I feel annoyed? Do I feel embarrassed? Do I feel angry? Do I feel sad? Do I feel lonely? All those things. And I work on this a lot actually with clients because I, I can speak to it from my own journey. I work on it a lot with clients now because of food. The number of times that humans eat when they are not hungry is astounding to me. And by the way, I'm including myself in this, guys. I'm not saying I'm some perfect person who isn't guilty of that, but we eat to escape negative emotion. We eat to escape sadness, loneliness, boredom, stress, anxiety, fear, you name it. And so if you want to actually change your behavior around food, and I know there's a lot of people who in the new year are all focused on wanting to lose weight and change their habits, 
the thing that I have that I tell people a lot is it really requires you digging deep and figuring out what's underneath it emotionally because it's so connected. I actually have the first client who has hired me who is almost, weighs almost 400 pounds. And I'm so excited to be working with him oh, because wow. I told him and he's signed on with me for a year, which is amazing. And I've told him, you are going to be a different person when this year is over. And he knows it. And he knows it. And he, I mean, it makes me cry. It's like so exciting to think about the transformation, but you have to change your identity. Everything that got him to be the person he is now at 400 pounds, which is not the real him inside, he has to change that. You can't, you know, I'm not saying he does this, but just pretend he did. You can't go hang out at TJI Fridays with your same group of buddies and order all the crappy food that you've been ordering and drink all the beers if that's what got you there. And I'm not saying that is for him, but just pretend with a mystery person. Or you can't be making cookies, let's say, every weekend with your family or going to that bakery every Saturday morning that you do with your kids or whatever all these habits are. You literally have to change who you are. And I say you have to become a different identity before you actually become that new person. It's the whole saying that they say in AA or Al-Anon, you fake it till you make it. Yeah. Because you're going to have to pretend you are that new person before you actually get there. Yeah. I've been working on that with clients a lot right now, just given especially this time of year and navigating the holidays, because everyone's like, well, what do I do when I go to my grandma's and they serve this food? Or what do I do when I'm over here and I have to go to this party and there's all this alcohol? And I, I tell them and no one likes this answer, but it's true. We all have the choice every moment, every day to either take that sip of alcohol or not, to eat that piece of sugar or not to eat that big carby meal or not. It's choice every time. And as soon as you accept that that's true, then you have to start taking responsibility for what you're actually doing. And a lot of people just don't want to take responsibility. And the people that do are my favorite to work with. And those are really most all of my clients, frankly, because they're ready for actual transformational change. So they're getting their responsibility. And then, of course, they put themselves into action. And it's just so cool to watch that. So sorry that I got on a tangent about work, but it it's just so cool. And I meandered to, to know. I know a lot of the stories that have been behind the scenes. I know you've shared some testimonials, you know, through social media, but I want you to uh, share a little bit about some of the, the things you have witnessed, you know, because what people don't realize is it's not just about losing weight, is that there are so many benefits. And of course, it's, you know, the confidence and, and the energy and everything else, but uh, the illnesses that people are riddled with and the medications that they're taking that you've helped them get off of. Yes. And okay, so I'll share this in the context of another podcast that I was just listening to. I listen to a lot of health podcasts. And one of the physicians who I was listening to talks about, and people in the medical world know this term, it's called the four horsemen of death. The primary things that f the four reasons that people die are in these four categories. Number one is some sort of atherosclerotic issue, okay? So that would be in the heart attack category, the stroke category, and the things that are going to affect your atherosclerotic system. Second would be cancers, okay? So people are going to die from cancers. That's a different category. Third would be neurological disorders. So these are your dementias, your Parkinson's, those kinds of things. And then fourth is this general concept of metabolic dysfunction. But what's interesting about metabolic dysfunction is it is what's typically in most cases, and again, this is in the science, in most cases, metabolic dysfunction is what underlies 
neurological disorders, cancers, and atherosclerotic disorders. So I feel like what I'm doing is so, so important in terms of helping people overhaul their metabolic health, because it really changes the whole trajectory of their lives and the length of their lives and, and how much they enjoy it. So a lot of clients that come to me, and I shouldn't say a lot, I would say on a percentage basis, I don't know if it's 50% or what it is, but you know, are have been a part of the Western medical system and are on multiple different prescriptions. And they'll express to me as I'm doing their intake form and they're sharing with me what it is that they take and they just, you know, reveal these are all the things I'm on. Many of them will say, but I really, in a perfect world, I wouldn't be on any of this. And so I say, well, to be clear, it's out of my scope of practice to ever interfere with any pharmaceutical medication you're taking. I can't do that. And if in consultation with your physician or whatever provider it was that prescribed you this stuff, you want to talk to that provider about weaning off any of these things over time and what would that look like and if they could assist you with that as you start to get healthier with me because we're changing how you eat and how you behave. What I do isn't just nutrition. It's also behavior. It's how many steps are we doing per day? Are you strength training? You know, how are you navigating the holiday parties? What are you doing at the happy hour at work? How is your sleep? We're talking about all these different components of metabolic health. Many of my clients will, in conjunction with their physician, start to wean off their medication and they just feel good and they don't need to take it anymore. It's so cool. I mean, I always like to give this as an example because, and I use this as an example because it's such a common thing that I see. Many, many, many Americans are what I refer to as protein malnourished. And I didn't come up with that term. That's a term that's been used by other physicians who really dove deep into protein mechanisms, how much we need, why we need it, what are the best quality sources, et cetera. If you, you, we get amino acids from protein. That's the, that's the material that we need in the protein. That's why we're consuming it. And amino acids, many people have heard as a term, it's the building blocks of our life. But one of the really important things that it does in our body is we need amino acids. We need to be consuming them to actually manufacture serotonin. Now, some people's ears may have perked up to be like, oh, serotonin. Oh, that's my happy neurotransmitter. Oh, if I'm on an antidepressant, a selective SSRIs, serotonin uptake inhibitors, that, that person had I found them before they found Western medicine and I overhauled their diet and lifestyle, I could almost guarantee you they would not need that medication. That's exactly what I wanted you to talk about next because the the gut and the gut brain association is so huge. And I, I think it's misunderstood or people don't, I guess, really understand much about it. And this has come up on also on my podcast with Amanda, but talking about how you know, we, we look at the staggering uh, statistics of mental health and mental illness right now and how it's been deteriorating, especially since 2020. And one of the things that is continuously overlooked by mainstream media is simply nutrition. And so speak to what you were just talking about, the serotonin, the protein, and and all the ways in which our mood and our happiness can be affected by our diet. I will. And before I do that, I want to I want to just back up about 10,000 feet first and share this because just because I've been seeing it a lot on social media and it's something I already knew, but it's something that's really important for people to understand. So, I'm a nutritional therapist, a functional nutritional therapy practitioner. That's my title. What does that mean? Why am I not a nutritionist? Why am I not a dietitian? Well, that's intention that was intentional on my part. So, when I chose to go back to school, I went through an organization called the Nutritional Therapy Association, 
It's a national organization. I actually now sit on the board of directors. I'm the board secretary. And we plan and overhaul curriculum and do all the programming for the school. And we train students all over the the nation. And if you're interested in this program, you guys, and I can't say enough good things about it, go to my website, which is energeticallyefficient.com. And I have a link there about learning more about becoming an NTP. Okay. So I have information on there. I share that because what most people don't understand is in the world of nutritionists and dietitians who go to more traditional colleges or universities, and this has now been very publicly revealed, there are a number of large-scale corporations, big pharmaceutical companies, et cetera, that fund those institutions. And so as you can imagine, the principles of nutrition that these institutions teach has been influenced by these companies. My school didn't do that. Everything is the Weston A. Price Foundation, and the Weston A. Price Foundation is a nonprofit organization that's based on the principles of Weston A. Price. I mean, coming back to our family system, Weston A. Price was a dentist in the late 1800s, early 1900s, who went around to different original tribal communities all over the world. So think a tribal community of original Aboriginal people in Fiji, in Africa, in Russia, in Ireland in India, every different corner of the world, and studied what happened to their jaw structures and dental caries when you introduced the Western diet into those tribes. What happened when you gave them sugar? And lo and behold, their teeth started to fall out, their jaws changed. And this is, of course, epigenetically over time, but it made a significant difference in their health. And so the traditions of the Weston A. Price diet are really, you know, minimally to zero processing of food, so it's a raw, whole, whole real foods, fruits and vegetables, animal proteins, raw milks and cheeses, fermented foods, bone broths, all the things that our body really thrives on and needs. And so the only influence in my school whatsoever is from that foundation, which is an excellent foundation, which is frankly how every human should eat, in my opinion, anyways. But we don't have the Kellogg's and the Nestle's and the Nabisco's and the General Mills and any of that funding in our school, which is why I respect it so much. So part of the problem in terms of where we are as a population today, sitting here in 2022, is that people have no awareness of the fact that largely what they are eating and what they have been taught is simply a program that has been sold to them by a lot of really, really wealthy, smart companies who are trying to sell them products all day long. Yeah. You know, it's so misleading. I mean, we just had a few girls here for a sleepover and, um, I said, I, I can get you guys some water. And one of them asked for orange juice. I said, we don't have orange juice here. And they're like, they, you don't have orange juice? I said, so let me, let's talk about orange juice. I said, <laughs> "Perfect." Uh, so God created oranges for us to consume. And the juice of one orange would make not even a an eighth of a cup of juice. I mean, it's a, maybe an eighth of a cup. So if you were to take a you know, bushel of oranges, it would probably take, I don't know, 10 oranges. And we know this because we, we do that for our, your your detox. Yes. We juice oranges. Yes. But it takes a lot of oranges to get that juice. So what was intended to be just a fraction of the juice, the amount of sugar, we're now consuming, you know, in this big glass full, which of course just sends our blood sugar through the roof. And yes. it has been marketed since the beginning that this is healthy. It's, you know, full of vitamins. Yep. And it's so deceiving. I understand. You see the commercials. We grew up with them, the Minute Maid, and it's just part of your breakfast. Every yes. time you see a breakfast scene, it's a glass of orange juice. Did the girls listen to you when you said it? Yeah, they're kind of, they, they both said, don't tell my mom. 
<laughs> You're kidding. Yeah. See, and, and why would they say that? It's because they get addicted to it because it's the sugar. You know what I always think about with orange juice? Is I think about grandpa, who was a type 1 diabetic. If he started to have a diabetic reaction, what did we give him? Yeah. Orange juice. Yeah. And that would put him right back because it's so much sugar. And so orange juice is, yeah, that's that's one of the demons out there. There are so many. I mean, the thing that I just recently shared on my Instagram, which people laugh at hysterically, but it's true. And there still are people who don't know this. Like wheat thins, I'm sorry, in my opinion, are not food. They're not. They're not. And we grew up with them. Yeah. I mean, everyone thought those were healthy. They have this yellow box and it says 100% whole grain, no artificial colors or flavor. It's like, what? So what? If you look at the ingredients on a box of wheat thins, all that is in that box is wheat, which is gluten and sugar, sugar, and industrial seed oils, like vegetable oil, canola oil, which are totally inflammatory for the body. So wheat thins give you zero nutrition whatsoever. I tell everyone, if you can remove one thing from your house, it's wheat thins. If you can remove another thing, it's like all those box cereals, because those also are literally just sugar and industrial seed oils. But those are the kinds of things on this planet right now that cause dis-ease. So when I say dis-ease, I'm meaning disease in the body. And it's because we're eating so much of that processed packaged food that again, going back to the reason I brought up the NTA, we're constantly marketed to and we don't even know it. So I spend a lot of time with my clients, depending on their level of education around food, doing what I call, and I tell them I'm doing this, I am deprogramming you from everything you thought you knew about food. So you think that this is food when you look at it, you think you should grab this off the grocery store, you think this is healthy. I mean, don't get me started on oat milk. People think oat milk is healthy. Oat milk is the biggest scam right now in America. It is such a joke. I had a woman respond to my story on Instagram one time. She's a friend of mine who was living elsewhere. And I was shaming Oatly at a grocery store and showing the ingredients and saying, guys, this is water, sugar, and rapeseed oil. You heard that right? Rapeseed oil, which is the same as canola oil, but just the name of it, you know it's bad for you right? So I was telling people how, please don't drink oat milk. Oatly is a joke. Don't do, don't drink oats that have now been constituted down into a milk. And she wrote me back a few days later and she said, oh my God, I literally stopped drinking oat milk after I watched your video. And all these weird stomach cramps and digestive issues I was having for the last several months are literally gone. No way. Yes. And it's because she was drinking sugar water with industrial seed oils. And by the way, they also add all these nasty gums. So it's it's all stuff that wrecks your digestive tract. And she had no idea and she thought it was healthy because we're marketed these things thinking it's a healthy alternative to other stuff. And the reality is it's not. Wow. What was it? Where did the push for oat milk even come from? It was just a new marketing ploy? Well, I think it's from this whole plant-based thing because there's such a push on plant-based. And and because this is obviously a huge tangled web that we don't need to get into, but I'll just say part of the problem is we have too many kids right now who have nut allergies. So bye-bye almond milk, bye-bye cashew milk, bye-bye walnut milk. They can't drink it because of all their nut allergies. And there's been a very significant correlation tied between all of those nut allergies and vaccine injury. It's just the truth. Look it up. There's a ton of research out there about it. I'm not saying it's true for every single human, but there is a correlation there. So a lot of the problems that we've created in our society that have caused different products and newfangled things to be marketed are because of something upstream that's already haywire. Perfect example, gluten-free. What? Okay, so now you're going to sell me, quote, gluten-free bread, which is made with all sorts of rice, all sorts of brown rice, all sorts of tapioca starch, all sorts of maybe corn. It's got all sorts of gluten-free stuff in it, but it has tons of carbohydrates and sugar. 
and all it's all processed packaged into a bread to make people feel good that they're not eating gluten. Yeah, but now you just created this blood sugar bomb in your body. And by the way, if we didn't monocrop our wheat and add all this glyphosate and round up these products that are destroying our gut, we probably wouldn't have this big of a problem with gluten. A lot of people will tell me, clients specifically, oh, weird, I went out of Europe and I had bread or I had pasta and I felt great and I had no bloating. And I'm like, well, of course, because the rules are different there and they don't poison their population like we do in America. It's so sad. It's so sad. It's so sad. And so, okay, that brings us back to, well, now we're, now that I'm thinking of it, one of the things I wanted to come back to was the the brain gut connection. So thank you. Yes. And if we are in the midst of destroying our gut, um, that's so connected to our brain, brain clearly there's going to be uh, issues. So Yeah. Yeah. I'll go back to that. Thank you for reminding me. So we are on, and I say this even in 2022, we are still on the precipice of understanding how important gut health is. Like we pretend we know a lot about it and there's a lot of different kinds of professionals out there that will claim they understand a lot about it. And we definitely understand more than we did 10 years ago. But I bet in 20 years, we'll be like, oh my God, can you believe we're now using strains of lacto blah, 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 or bacillus blah, blah, blah to heal this autoimmune disease? I mean, that's where that's where probiotics are headed, in my opinion, just based on what I've seen so far in the research. And there are papers, there's lots of research around this. If you just go to Google, and if you're curious about whether there's any probiotic strains that would heal an autoimmune condition, Google the name of the autoimmune condition with a probiotic and do pub med, P-U-B-M-E-D. Now, scientific papers aren't always available for free online, but a lot of them are. And so you'll see there's lots and lots of different research being done on all sorts of autoimmune conditions with different strains of bacteria. And the reason that that's the case is we know when we've done studies on people that have, you know, you name the the autoimmune condition, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, some sort of Hashimoto's, anything like that, that these people have specific unique characteristics to their gut microbiome that are different from people who don't have those conditions. And so what their research is being done is to say, oh, interesting. Well, if if this particular strain is there's an overabundance of it or there's an underabundance of it, perhaps if we can balance the gut diversity in this person better, we can really start to rehab and, and get them on the other side of their autoimmune condition. And, and this has been done, which is so neat. So, but But the gut and the brain, some people call our gut our second brain. Some people say, oh no, it's way more important than our brain. It's your first brain (laughs) because it's driving the bus in a lot of ways. So the amount of DNA that we have in our body when we were created from the egg and the sperm and then we multiply and then we, we get this set of DNA and that's what we have. The amount of DNA we have in our body pales in comparison to the amount of DNA in the bacteria in our body. So there is way more bacterial DNA in our body And I'm sharing that because think about how powerful that is in terms of how much they are driving the bus, not us. So when I say that your gut, and I I talk about gut in the context of your intestines. So when the food goes into your mouth, we're chewing it. You also have salivary enzymes that are starting to break it down chemically. So we have this mechanical and chemical breakdown of food, which is what digestion is. When you digest food, that's all you're doing. Mechanically breaking it down because we have these teeth and jaws. And then you're chemically breaking it down with the salivary enzymes. Then the food goes down your esophagus, gets to your stomach. And after it's in your stomach, 
It goes right past your liver and your gallbladder, and those two organs work to inject bile into the process of digestion. Then the food gets to your small intestine. Then it gets to your large intestine, and that's the same thing as your colon, so that it can go out your body. The waste can go out your body. But when your food gets to your small intestine, by the time it gets there, where it's it's just mushy, liquidy, emulsified with the bile, your small intestine is a really, really important organ that most people have zero appreciation for. And it's because it's that one that we talk about when we say gut-brain connection. So you want your small intestine to be very diverse with bacteria. I want it to be like a beautiful tropical rainforest. Palm trees, ferns, pine trees. Like, think of every different kind of plant in, you can think of, an animal, frankly, all of them in there together. And you want it to be super diverse because you're going to have the raw materials that you need to then work with the amino acids to make serotonin. To work. And you're also going to have the right bacteria in there to be able to help your small intestine grab the nutrients of the food and absorb them into that organ. So, oh, oh, there's a there's a little piece of omega-3. Grab that from that fish. Oh, there's some vitamin C out of that orange. Grab that. Oh, there's some vitamin E, whatever it is. There's some magnesium. And then your small intestine is going to absorb it. And it's the bacteria that's job is to do that? To f- Yeah, good question. So it, the bacteria is responsible for creating energy and digesting out of out of the food that you're eating. So it gets the bacteria gets energy out of what you're eating. So if you're eating all sugar all day long, then you're feeding the bacteria who thrive on sugar. If you're eating fermented foods, grass-fed meat and vegetables all day long, then you're feeding those bacteria and the sugar bacteria, the ones who feed on sugar, they'll die. They'll die. So it's why when people do a detox sometimes they don't feel great because they're actually experiencing the symptoms of die off from the bacteria in their intestines that were really, really making you have all those sugar cravings because they wanted them. It's not your brain that wants them. It's your gut. Your gut wants them. And your gut is always, always talking to your brain, always sending signals up there. So those bacteria who love sugar, have you ever noticed if you go on vacation, you have a bunch of sugar, you come home and you tend to want more sugar or you have sugar one day and then you tend to want it the next day? Well, it's, it's, that's not random. That's literally driven by the diversity of your gut microbiome. So we want it to be that tropical rainforest. So then, and I see this a lot in my practice, let's say you have a kid who had double ear infections a bunch of times growing up, all sorts of sinus infections, whatever it was, and they were on rounds and rounds and rounds of antibiotics. These people took that gorgeous tropical rainforest that they had and decimated it with a bunch of bulldozers. So now it's bald. Their small intestine is bald. Well, if you think about it, then, so you have nothing, Okay. Then what are you typically doing when you're sick? It's like, oh, I want the feel-good food. I want the soup. I want peanut butter and jelly sandwich. I want my mom's cookies. I want whatever. So now you're repopulating this barren land with not great choices. There's there's rarely a person who comes out of being sick is like, oh, I want to have a meal of a bunch of vegetables and some really high quality meat and olive oil. Like people aren't generally doing that. So now you've created this dysbiotic situation in your gut and dysbiosis simply means imbalance of good to bad bacteria where you have more bad bacteria than good because we killed all the good. I mean, I get when people take antibiotics, they're trying to kill bad bacteria, but the negative consequence to antibiotics is you also kill all of the good bacteria. And it, I mean, I used to take plenty of antibiotics. I don't do that anymore, but I used to thinking that that's what you do. So it takes years to rehab people's gut health oftentimes, depending on the state of it. So 
my long-winded explanation to get back to your brain gut health thing is the diversity of what's going on in our small and large intestine, in our intestines, in our gut is really important in terms of what you crave, how satiated you are, how much sugar you consume, how well you sleep, what your mood is, whether you're happy or sad, whether you can get up early in the morning. I mean, all this stuff is is really a huge factor in it is our gut health. And and like I said in the beginning of this, I really think we're on the precipice of understanding how important it is. So what I notice, and I'm sure you can speak to this as well, every time I do that two-week detox, I feel like a million dollars times 10 on steroids and crack. Uh, um, like <laughs> right? somebody just shot me with like the most amazing drugs ever. And yes. I'm just like Energizer Bunny. Crazy. Yes. Yeah. And it's in, in large part why that is happening is two reasons. Number one, you're getting a bunch of toxins out of your body because we're flushing them out every day by using that awesome crayon water and just tons of water. And you're overhauling the state of your gut health. So I've read, I don't know if this is true, but I've read that it only takes four days to completely overhaul the health of your gut in terms of at least what the diversity is in there, which I always say when we do this detox, it's why I think people turn the corner by day four a lot of the time is because you start to actually feel a lot better because you're getting a lot of that garbage out. But there is, it's a very powerful part of our health. And again, I I know I'm beating dead horse, but I think we're on the precipice of understanding it. Well, it is. And that there's so many people who... um say they don't want to adhere to anything that feels so restrictive where they can't have anything. And I get it. But what, when I'm avoiding any kind of processed sugar, I don't miss it. Same. Because my gut isn't craving it anymore. Yes. Yes. And so it's less about like your line about willpower. Say Yes. I always say it is not about willpower. It's about wisdom. I say it's wisdom over willpower all the time, because if you can literally become the person who can walk by the Dunkin' Donuts and like, huh, there's Dunkin' Donuts, take it or leave it and not feel compelled to go and buy something because you literally have such a good diverse microbiome that you're not craving sugar, like then you don't even have to use willpower. Right. So I tell people it's literally about understanding with your brain. Oh, you mean if I just take this two-week detox and I do that, you're telling me I'll be on the other side of my cravings? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You will. That's what I'm telling you. anymore. And this is coming from, mind you, I I consumed fruit snacks like it was my job as a kid. (laughs) Gushers. Like uh, gushers. Yeah. And any kind of red dye 40, by the way, thank God I'm doing so much detoxing as an adult because- Red D40 was your jam. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Remember the, not Twizzlers, what was the one I loved? Red Vines. Oh, see, those ones were garbage to me. Oh, Twizzlers brand, Nibs, uh, the regular licorice, Cinnamon Bears. I mean, don't get me started. Yeah, you and Steph were all with cinnamon bears. That was not my jam. Oh. I was like cherry over cinnamon every day. Oh, no. Hot Those tamales. nibs, if you gave me a king, oh. Literally, it's everything in the red dye, which is like the biggest carcinogen. It's of, like, so bad. It's so bad. I'm super happy I did yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, I think that's the the misnomer about people saying like, oh, well, you know, everything in moderation. And uh, yes, uh, I I agree with that. But. If you just cut fully cut out these things that these things that cause the sugar craving and the inflammation for a time, people will realize that they don't even want them totally. Anymore. And I'm not saying that's like a forever thing. Like I just I'm hot off of Christmas. I definitely uh, enjoyed some of the sugar cookies the kids made with grandma and yep. you know, um, same. But 
I then I also have like food hangover for a couple of days. Well, and I was just saying, because you and I were talking about this before and I talked to Steph about it too. We all feel a little bit under the weather since then. And I literally, I've been doing this carnivore experiment for 30 days. I took two days off where I had the waffles that dad makes. I had, you know, I had sugar cookies. I had some mom's fudge. I loved it. And I would do it all over again. But it is shocking to me that even two days of it, it dips my immune system. And now I feel a little under the weather. So I was at acupuncture last night and my acupuncture guy, Alex, who I adore, is feeling my pulse and literally says to me, did you have sugar? In the last few days, and I'm like, Alex, I did. And he said, okay, I can just, I can tell based on my pulse. He's a very gifted human. He could tell. And I had told him when I walked in there that I was kind of feeling a little under the weather and that I was having some like just gunk come up. And he said, yeah, your immune system just dipped because of the sugar. Uh, well, yeah. And it's also what so many kids get sick around Halloween and people are always like, oh, well, it's starting to get cold. And I'm like, no, it's no. because they just consumed so much sugar. Yes. It's never like every single year. Yeah. It happens. It's so true. And people don't don't have any awareness around it. Yeah. So I always like to, you know, I, I, I mean, in terms of when it comes to feeding kids, because I could talk about that topic for three hours, I just to give parents some like easy takeaways, I always say, just start with like a healthy swap. You know, like I remember when you and I first did this, it was like, okay, we're taking out the crappy cereal and we're going to get the magic spoon or something, you know? And now your kids eat oatmeal with protein powder, they eggs and avocado toast. They're eating real food for breakfast, which makes them learn better, makes them do better in athletics, makes them sleep better, puts them in better moods, makes them friendlier to their teachers and classmates. I mean, you name it, the list is amazing. And parents feel so intimidated by, well, how can I take away, you know, the fruity pebbles from my kid? You just do it. And you can start by doing it with some other kind of sweet tasting thing. And then you slowly just remove it over time. Well, and Whitney's been obsessed with smoothie bowls lately. Yes. And that is, I mean, you can make these like protein smoothie bowls or uh, in a glass, whatever. Um, so sweet tasting, but it's all natural fruit. Yep. Um, you add protein in it. You can have it with, you know, almond milk or. Whatever. She uses yogurt sometimes too. Yeah. 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 And I told her when she was making it one day when I was here, I said, okay, honey, did you add protein? She's like, oh shoot, I forgot. But she normally does add like a vanilla protein powder, which is great. So I just told her, I said, okay, so if you don't add protein, just remember all that you're eating in that bowl is carbs. And then my concern is then your blood sugar is going to crash later, you know? Right. And if you want to have sustained energy all day, you want to eat carbs with protein and with fat and have them all together. And, you know, she kind of eye rolls at me sometimes, but she right. did listen <laughs> when I said that she did. <laughs> she cares less about, you know, the, uh, what it's doing for body at this point and just like, can we make something that is palatable that yes. we can, you know, which that's fine. If that's, if that's our entrance point, that's fine. They're, I agree. They're not going to fully appreciate it until, you know, they probably get older. And most of us don't give nutrition a whole lot of weight until we start to see it catch up to us, yeah. whether it's weight or, um, illness, disease. Yeah. And, um, and so I get it. I mean, I, I didn't get into nutrition until I gained weight either. And, and then I had to slowly start learning more. Well, and it's even been interesting for me to just watch you and Gary transform over the last however many years. Yeah. Just making even more intentional choices. I mean, I have saved in my favorites the before and after picture of Gary. Yeah. And Gary's always been adorable and handsome, obviously. But he just looks so less inflamed. 
Well, that's what I was just going to say, because his pant size has been a 32 since we've met. That has never changed. Yep. But the inflammation in his face and in his midsection uh, has completely changed since we've adopted, you know, brought in quality, higher fats, more protein, and eliminated these processed sugars. Yeah. What I always say is you're consuming what I do, which is a well-formulated low-carbohydrate diet. And I hate the word diet. It's really a lifestyle. So I teach my clients how to eat a well-formulated low-carbohydrate lifestyle, regardless of whether they want to lose weight or maintain or just get healthier. That's really what everyone needs to be doing. And when I say low carb, I'm not talking 20 grams of carbs or less a day. A well-formulated low-carbohydrate diet is 150 grams of carbohydrates or less per day. You know, if you really are in a weight loss phase, I say do keep it under 50. But if you're in a maintenance phase, you can play between 50 and 150, especially if you're more active. And so it's, it's about exactly what you said, which is increasing the healthy fats, getting more lean protein, and then reducing the processed sugars and other carbohydrates. That's really like for all sorts of reasons, that's the way humans should be eating. Yeah. And it, and it affects the, the sleep, the energy, everything that just makes it worth it. I mean, and there's so many ways to do it and have everything taste well. Like, as you know, because I've been doing this 30-day carnivore experiment, I'm doing a lot of grass-fed ground beef. I've done rotisserie chicken. I've done tons of bacon. I've done pork. I've done shrimp. I've done all sorts of different stuff. And then, of course, our amazing, what I call the carnivore hard chocolate, which has been probably the best thing. But I was just having a last sip of my... A sip of. I've just finished mine. Um, but just things that you can have that that still taste really good. Like people think, especially because it's this time at the beginning of the year, that they're going to lose out on all of this flavor or all of these things that taste so good. And it's like, are you kidding me? Have you Let me prepare a meal plan for you for a week. And I promise you, you will not feel that way after. I mean, the number, the number one thing I hear from my clients, especially when they're with me in week one, is I can't believe I get to eat this much food and I'm losing weight. Yeah. And, and full fat that has is so much flavor and yes. it satiates you because you're actually full. Yes. As opposed to these empty carbohydrates that are not even food. Yeah. Just for a quick win for people to understand, and this gets a little technical and into the science, but I really think it's important for people to understand this. You, We need three things to make us satiated. And I say satiated instead of full, because to me, full is when you're like rolling out of Manny's Steakhouse, you ate the hash browns, you had dessert, you have to unbutton your pants, you feel like a sloth. Like, no. Like the old 96er? Yeah, the old 96er. Like, yes, John Candy and the old 96er. But when I say satiated, I mean satisfied. Like you've had enough and you're good. And some people might call that full. We need three things to make us full. Number one, we need to eat protein because protein stimulates a hormone called peptide YY. And we release that in response to the consumption of protein. Two, we have to eat healthy fats because we, we secrete a hormone called cholecystokinin, which is also referred to as CCK. And that comes out in response to the consumption of, of fat. So those two are the three legs of the stool. And then the third leg of the stool to make us satiated is volume. And that's because inside our stomach, we have proprioceptors that when food gets in it, and now your stomach is getting more, you know, there's more and more food in there. All of a sudden, the food will at some point hit the inside of the wall of the stomach. And you have sensors, proprioceptors that are like, oh, 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 we're getting full. We're getting full. We're getting full. So I always say, imagine when you do a full skillet meal of some sort of grass-fed ground beef, tons of really good vegetables, and some olive oil or, or grass-fed butter. Like you now have protein to stimulate peptide YY, 
from the beef. You now have grass-fed butter to stimulate the CCK, which is the healthy fat. And then you have all those vegetables in there for volume. You're so good and satiated after that meal that you can go for hours without eating again. And by the way, I can make the hugest skillet meal and it's like under 400 calories. It's crazy because it's filled with such good volume of fiber. Well, contrast that to eating like wolfing down a sleeve of Ritz crackers. You know, if I crush up a sleeve of Ritz crackers in my hand, it's like pixie dust. And it's very, it's a little pile of pixie dust. So you eat that whole thing and you would think like, oh, that'll tide me over for a while. Well, no, it has no protein it has no healthy fat and it has no volume. So you're going to be digging in the cupboard or the fridge 20 minutes after you eat that because it didn't give you anything that's going to cause you to set off your satiety signaling. So it's, it's really what you eat is really important in terms of how much more you want to eat that day or don't. Mm-hmm. And it'll likely put your blood sugar up, which is just going to make you want more. Yes. Yeah. The other thing is, because we ha- you've mentioned that a couple of times, we haven't really talked about that much, but that is the other huge thing that I wish that more Americans understood, which is we all have sugar in our blood at all times. We have to have a very small amount of sugar, but it's only like one to two teaspoons. That's it. It's, that's it. And by the way, the difference between a person with normal blood sugar and a person with full-blown type 2 diabetes is a fourth of a teaspoon. It's like nothing. They have that much more sugar in their blood than we do. So people may say, okay, well then how do I not have diabetes if I've clearly eaten more than a fourth of a teaspoon of sugar in my life? And the short answer is it's because after you consume a lot of sugar, your body goes through a very sophisticated process inside to clean all of that sugar out of your blood to bring you back down to one teaspoon. Because it doesn't want you to get diabetes. Your body's like, no, 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 no. So it starts to get nervous inside. And your pancreas, which is this little organ on your left side of your body, right behind your rib cage, your pancreas in response to the whole sugar bomb that you just consumed, starts to spit out insulin. And insulin is a hormone that's job is to clean the sugar out of your blood. That's what it does. So it literally is just cleaning, cleaning, cleaning. And I always say to clients, I wish, boy, do I wish that insulin was so magical that it could evaporate the sugar into thin air, but it can't, it has to go somewhere. So first it's going to store it in your liver, but there's a very small amount of sugar that can be stored in your liver. And then the second place it's going to be stored is your skeletal muscle. So people like me who have more muscle, have a way bigger storage tank for sugar than someone who doesn't have muscle. But then once your liver is full and once your skeletal muscle full, which doesn't take that long, now all of the sugar and carbohydrates you consume get stored as body fat, unless you're burning them off every day doing a ton of activity. But I I tell people that's why it's so easy to get fat when you're eating loads and loads of carbohydrates because they literally have to be stored on your body somewhere. Okay, so first first you're sugar gets stored in the liver and then in your skeletal muscle, which is why people who have a lot of muscle can have, you know, sweets a little more often. It it doesn't affect them. Um, And then the third place is as body fat. Yes. And so your liver and your skeletal muscle don't grow in response to the consumption of sugar, but your body fat is an unlimited storage capacity because it can just keep growing. So if you see someone walking around that is extremely obese, like there's these shows like my 600 pound life, all of that is they have a lot of stored carbohydrate in their adipose tissue. 
And so I tell clients, if your goal is weight loss, if that's why you're hiring me, one of the things that we have to do in the beginning is we have to dramatically reduce your carbohydrate so that we can train your body and we can remind your body, oh, that's right. We have a bunch stored here on our butt, on our tricep. Like we have all this extra carbohydrate that's in storage for later use because you ate so much of it a while ago. We needed to store it for you. And so now you're going to let us start using it. So that's why it works so well to burn off body fat. I mean, people call keto a phase. And, you know, to be clear, I do not put everyone on a ketogenic diet. Ketogenic diets are fantastic for people with epilepsy, people who are worried about Alzheimer's or dementia, people who have Parkinson's. There's lots of good reasons for people to be in ketosis a lot. My goal with clients is I want you to do something sustainable and I want you to be in and out of ketosis, but I don't care if you're in ketosis all the time. I care about you becoming metabolically flexible so that you can eat carbs sometime, you can eat fat other times, and your body can go back and forth between fuel sources and you don't feel it, where you don't get hangry and all of a sudden need to eat, you know, whatever the crackers or things are in the cupboard because it's been three hours since you had a meal and now you're all of a sudden starving. Well, you're not starving. You're having a blood sugar dysregulation experience and you think you're hungry and all you're actually experiencing is low blood sugar. Right. So if it if somebody starts off on a plan with you, it might be something where their carbohydrates might be, it, it might vary, you're saying. So each, depending on what each person comes in at, you're going to work with where they're at and Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Yep. And I have clients, most of my clients are really good about wanting to include and incorporate animal protein, which there's just a lot of research around how important it is for our health. But I do have some clients who either are practicing vegan or a vegetarian, and it's really important for them for ethical reasons or whatever to stay like that. So I work with them too. I don't have very many of those clients, but I am willing to work with those people if that's a priority to them. I also, though, educate them about why it's so important that they get animal protein in their body because it's so good for us. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people in my space, and, and if there's any vegans listening, they're going to be eye roll at this, but there are a lot of people who say veganism is a fast way to depression. And it's because you are most of the time, unless you are very well supplemented, missing the essential amino acids that your body needs to make serotonin. And so all of a sudden, after years of being a vegan, you find yourself in a more depressive state. That's just the way our bodies work. Like, that's not, I'm not manufacturing that. That's just reality. And so you'd have to very much supplement with a lot of essential amino acids in order to avoid that consequence. Well, and there are also ways to find humanely raised and... Yes. Ethical. Ethical. Yes. Thank you. Um, so that if, you know, if it is purely about uh, the animals, there are a lot of places, um, you know, that you've introduced me to. Yes. We just talked about this last week and how we had white oak pasture, turkey for Thanksgiving and how we did this year. Yeah. And it's amazing. And so that Will Harris, who owns white oak pastures, because I did a tour there, Vanessa and I went down there um, last spring and Will took us on a tour of that farm and we got to see how everything is made. It is fantastic what that man is doing for the earth because he's truly regenerating the earth. And, you know, his chickens are all pasture raised. They run out and they eat bugs and insects and things off the ground and they eat grass and the things that they should eat as opposed to being in some sort of cages where they're fed a bunch of chicken feed. They're actually eating off the earth and then they're defecating in the earth and then that's rehabbing the soil and then that's growing more plants. So it's it's a very amazing ecosystem that he has going there and there's lots of different 
regenerative agriculture farms like that around the country. I mean, what's really destroying our earth in a lot of ways is this monocropping of certain agricultural products like the corn, wheat, soy, and those types of things. So regenerative agriculture, if you want to support anything and have ethical practices and want to feel better about how you're feeding yourself and your family, find a regenerative agricultural farm in your area or go to whiteoakpastures.com or look up other farms like that and, and support those businesses because they really are doing wonders for the earth. Speaking of uh, where we can find things, you mentioned earlier that you will be, you wish you could just prepare a healthy meal for people so they could understand how good nutritious food tastes. Yes. Which leads me to what you are releasing. My cookbook. Yes. My cookbook's coming out, which I'm so excited about. You've been obviously instrumental in making that happen. So the cookbook is called Eating Efficiently, which is totally on brand with the energetically efficient label. But what I mean by that, and I talk about this in the book, what eating efficiently means and what eating efficiently is not. It really is about how do you nourish your body healthfully for optimal metabolic health without spending hours and hours and hours in the kitchen. I mean, you and I both do this just as that's how we live. You're able to feed your family with nourishing foods without making 14 course meals for them each week. And so there is a way to do it. It's all about deprogramming and reprogram the way we think about food. And so I feel like an experiential cookbook, like what I've created to allow people to say, oh, I didn't think about that as a meal or wow. So that's a meal. Okay, got it. And I talk about in the book, like make sure you get this much protein in this meal. This serving equals this. You might want to add a couple things here just so that people can understand how they can balance their blood sugar and eat well and not have to spend hours and hours and hours in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. And it's gorgeous. Yes. I will say when you're when the designers sent that first draft, I was like, okay, I did not expect this, but this is the sexiest cookbook I've ever it seen. It is. It really is. Yes. It's beautiful. I'm so, so that I'm very excited about. It. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be one of those ones that people want to just have like out or like open to a particular yes. page, you know? Because it's so pretty. Yes. And the photography was excellent. The photographer that I hired yeah. to take the photos of all of these gorgeous recipes was just excellent. And he used to be a chef in New York. And then after he got done with his chef work, he decided to flip and go on the other side of the camera. And so he does food photography now and he's just fantastic. It was so fun. What a perfect find. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Madison. She's the gift. She is. She found him. Amazing. She found him. So that will be coming out uh, hopefully around the time this episode releases. But um, for people who want to get connect with you today, how can they find you? Where's the best spot to yeah. get in touch with you? Good question. So Energetically Efficient is my website. And there are links to all of my social channels on my website. But if you are on Instagram, I go by MN. That's MN for Minnesota. MN Golden Girl is my handle on Instagram. And Energetically Efficient just recently launched a YouTube channel. So there's going to be tons of more YouTube stuff coming in 2023. I launched my first vlog. So I now know that vlog is video logging, <laughs> like a blog, but with a V, big girl. Yeah. And it's awesome. Thank uh, you. It gets to follow you in your day to day. Yeah really see how you curate a healthy lifestyle, which I absolutely yeah, love. I feel like that's just fun for people. It's like, how does this work in practice? Like, what's the reality of it? So I'm going to share as much of that as I can so that people can see the good, the bad, and the ugly. For sure. Yeah. And for any of you who are curious about doing one of Chris's detox, because I always say that's a great way to kind of dip your toes into really overhauling your nutrition for the first time. And um, it's a cost effective route. Yep. Um, it's inexpensive. So when when do you plan on doing your next 
So it's going to be every quarter. So it's January 16th is the one in January of 2023. And then there'll be another one in April, another one in July, and another one in October. So we're on every quarter set. And I can't remember the dates in April, but it ends up being pretty much the middle two or the last two weeks of that month, whatever the month is. Okay. I'll be ready for the yeah, 16th. I can't wait. It's yeah. going to be so great. Well, thank you so much. I, obviously, you're going to have to come back sometime because I'm already thinking of things that I wanted to touch on, but there's for sure talk everything under the sun. We could do this for four hours, I'm yes, sure. Yes, we could. <laughs> okay. Thank love you, honey. Love you so much. I love you. Bye-bye. Bye. 